This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. Hi, Georgie here. Welcome to the FemPower Health Podcast, where today Jen Salib Huber joins us from Europe. She is a registered dietitian and naturopathic doctor and has a wealth of experience in perimenopause and menopause. She also runs an online program called The Thinking Woman's Guide to Perimenopause and Menopause, and it's a self-study program that's open to women in any stage of perimenopause and menopause. And I'm, I've been hearing such great reviews about this program, so definitely check it out. Before we dive in, a couple of quick announcements. It is nearing the end of the year, so FemPower Health is looking at what are we going to do for 2021. So we've got some ideas already in place, but we'd like to hear from you. What are the topics that you want us to cover? Who are the guests we should have? And if there's any other feedback you have, please do share it. You can reach me at georgie at fempower-health.com. So let's dive into the episode where Jen starts right off talking about the hormone changes that women have over their lifetime, and she likes to call this hormonal soup. Something that became really apparent to me is that the hormonal soup that we're swimming in between 35 and 55 is very unique, right? So the first half of our reproductive life is pretty stable. You go through puberty, you kind of have 20 years where you're churning out an egg every month or two. As a result of that, you had a pretty predictable hormonal soup, right? You can certainly still have some shifts over the course of the month. Women can experience PMS. They might have bits and pieces that might feel a little kind of ugly, but in general, it's predictable. But once you hit perimenopause, which is somewhere between 35 and 45 for most women, it becomes a totally different soup. And so all of a sudden, what was known and what was familiar and what you could live with and work with and manage becomes very different. And so women started coming in at 35, 36, 37 with anxiety that they'd never had before. Or all of a sudden, we're having really heavy, painful, long periods, or we're noticing body changes that they couldn't explain. The research tells us that most women are misdiagnosed. They're not diagnosed as being perimenopausal. They're misdiagnosed with depression, with anxiety, with insomnia, with all of the labels that we try and treat without actually looking at the root cause. Once I started to notice that in my practice, I became really driven to say, okay, I want to help women understand what's happening because it is normal. It does happen to all of us, different experiences, but I really wanted to work to support women through this natural, normal process and help them to feel empowered on the other side. 
So let's talk about what is perimenopause. Sure thing. So let's start with menopause because it's easier to actually start from there and work around that. So menopause is actually one day. Menop you are considered in menopause when you have not had a period for 12 months. Everything before that is perimenopause and everything after that is postmenopause. It's not a linear path. So what I tend to see happen and what the research tells us is that there are three stages to perimenopause. There's very early perimenopause, which is most likely to be women often late 30s, early 40s. They might start to experience a missed period or a shorter period, or they might start to have a night or two of night sweats or hot flashes the day before their period. Maybe they're experiencing mid-cycle sleep waking that's new to them. And maybe it's not enough that they can piece all the pieces together. So they might go years without ever connecting the dots or having the dots connected for them that this is related to their hormones. They're looking at all of the other reasons. So very early perimenopause is difficult sometimes to stage unless you're working with somebody who knows what to help you look for. Early perimenopause is probably what's been more recognized over the last few years. This is when we're regularly starting to have some period changes that you have, you're not missing them from month to month, but they're also not the same from month to month. You might have a short one, a long one, a heavy one, a light one. It's kind of defined by that unpredictability. And then late perimenopause is when you're not having regular periods on a regular basis. So you're regularly going two, three, four months without having a period. Typically, it's the cycle patterns and the period uh, symptoms that help us to stage people, which helps us to figure out what hormones are in play at that various stage. What role does someone like you play? And when someone comes in to work with you, tell us what happens? And then I'd like to get to what happens when you're going to more allopathic or your traditional mm -hmm. type of doctor. I'd love to do that comparison. In general, when people go to see an integrative practitioner, uh, someone like a naturopathic doctor who kind of looks at the whole person from a holistic perspective, the first thing that we do is to try and figure out what's going on. And sometimes that means looking for things other than hormones, right? So oftentimes women will come in and say, I know it's my hormones. Can you help me feel better? And as over the course of talking to them and getting their history and learning about them, it's like, well, it actually might not be your hormones. So the first thing is to really work with somebody who can look at your symptoms through the lens of perimenopause, but also has the experience and the knowledge to look for other things that could be important too. Sometimes, you know, people will get great advice from a friend or a neighbor or a sister, but it's not the right advice for them because maybe it wasn't the hormones. First thing that we do is we get a really good history of what's happening now, but also what your reproductive history was. So did you have PCOS? Did you have endometriosis? Did you have difficulty getting pregnant? Was there anything, did you have irregular cycles? Was there anything in your history that can help us to maybe figure out what's going on or to figure out if this is actually perimenopause or maybe it's part of the other condition that you had? We might look at testing, we might look at hormone levels, but for the most part, perimenopause is diagnosed by symptoms, right? There isn't a single test that can tell us whether you're perimenopausal. There is for menopause, we can measure a hormone called follicle stimulating hormone. And if it's above a certain level, we can be pretty sure that your ovaries aren't working anymore. But we don't have a test like that in perimenopause, because most women are still have enough hormone that they're having a period. And if you're still having a period, 
there's no blood test that's going to be able to tell us more than what a good history and conversation will be able to tell us. So a lot of what I would do with someone is having a conversation about how are you sleeping? Um, are you, do you have difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep? Have you started waking up in the middle of the night? And is that new for you? Um, have you started to notice that you're feeling hotter or warmer a few days before your period? And is that new for you? Do you feel anxious for no reason? And is that new for you? So it's a lot of trying to figure out what what's new, what's different, um, and when it's happening in the cycle. So once we can really start to stage someone and say, okay, I think you're in very early perimenopause, we can be more certain that we need to work on supporting progesterone, for example. Um, and so we would use a combination of diet, lifestyle, herbal medicine, maybe acupuncture, those types of treatment options to, again, help support this normal process, right? This is not a disease. This isn't something that ought, that that needs to be hit over the head, in, you know, in order to be kind of stamped out. We really just need to support the body through this process. And there's so much that we can do with food and with herbal medicine um, and with integrative treatment options. So the way I'm hearing this is as we enter this life stage, there are things that happen that can feel disruptive to your day to day. And there are things you can do to ease that. Yeah. So here's a perfect example. So because perimenopause, like I always say, is defined by inconsistency, understanding that a lot of that inconsistency has to do with fluctuating levels of estrogen, right? So because the number of eggs that we have and the number of follicles that we have shifts a little bit from month to month, um, our estrogen levels can actually vary pretty wildly in perimenopause. You know, we often think about estrogen decline as being the most important piece, but it's actually not. It's the variability. And with that variability, we can have changes in sleep. We can have changes in uh, serotonin production. So estrogen levels can help to support serotonin production. So as estrogen levels go higher, serotonin can be higher. As estrogen levels can be lower, serotonin can be lower. We can also have effects of cortisol. So cortisol being a stress hormone, that can have an impact on other hormones. So a lot of these things, which may not have even been noticeable in our 20s and 30s, because we had this nice steady level of hormones, are now very noticeable. They're now front and center. So if we can support that fluctuating level of estrogen, if we can support uh, neurotransmitter production, you know, if we can support managing that stress level, then the hormone symptoms will be less noticeable and more manageable. So if, you know, sometimes we're not treating the hot flashes, we're treating the things that are interfering with how your body copes with that change. If you look at the optimal way a woman's body evolves, meaning let's assume we have a woman that you're working with, you know, she's not sleeping great and it's been regulated and then menopause happens and you have that whole shift in estrogen. We hear vaginal dryness. Mm -hmm. We hear you go on the hormone therapy, but then I also hear women say, oh my God, your fifties are the best. Can you, <laughs> since you see these women and know the, the symptoms and not the Instagram posts of how everything's great, what should we expect and how do we live that amazing fifties life? That's a great question because one of my big whys is helping women to understand that perimenopause and menopause is not a death sentence. It is not the end of the world. Life does not go downhill after this, but it could be a rocky few years. I use the analogy of you're going to get there either way, but you can choose to either take the bumpy road or the 
paved road. And so the paved road is where you pull in your supports. And that could be support from integrated practitioners like myself. That could be support from a pelvic floor therapist. It could be support from a psychologist. It could be support from a family doctor or gynecologist. But it's about building that team of people who can help to cushion you through those bumpy rides. When women don't get that support, when they're left to kind of just drown and kind of flail and try and make it to the other side of the lake without support, I think that's when women get to the end and they feel exhausted, right? That by the time they hit their 50s, they're like, oh my God, I have nothing left in me to give. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I haven't slept for 10 years. I've been dealing with all this stuff. And it can take them a really long time to recover. But when women are supported, when they're taught what's happening and when they're taught how to, you know, sometimes I hesitate to use the word manage, but when they're taught to kind of cope with these changes as normal and natural, they feel empowered. And when you come through that, when you come through this experience that, you know, you share with half the planet, because we all go through it in some way or another, it can, it can energize you, it can really motivate you to want to do, you know, your best in other parts of your life. So I think that what I really want women to understand, and and what I, I'm starting to see on social media, and I love to see kind of women saying, it doesn't have to suck. And it isn't going to suck. Like you don't have to look at this as the beginning of the end, right? You know, it's not that everything goes downhill. It's that everything changes and let's work on that change together and let's support you through that change so that you can actually feel better on the other side than you did before. If, if I have this team, so you mentioned a few different ones, the pelvic floor physical therapy, yeah. what do they help with? Pelvic Floor physiotherapists, I think, are the unsung heroes of women's health because they deal with so so many of the ones that I've worked with have been amazing in that they help women to understand a part of their body that they may never have thought about or talked about. So unless you had severe incontinence or unless you have severe pain with intercourse, you may not even know that a pelvic floor physiotherapist exists, but they can help women who are having any kind of pain, bladder dysfunction, irritable bladder and overactive bladder, pain with intercourse, pelvic pain, having rectal pressure, having incontinence, you know, these are quality of life issues for women, right? And so once you get to be in your 40s, and if you've had kids, or if you've, you know, anything else happening, these might be issues that you don't bring up with your doctor, or you feel like nobody has a solution. So you're just going to live with it. I often refer to pelvic floor physiotherapists and they can make an amazing difference in women's quality of life. The pelvic floor physical therapist can help, but then also what about the hormone replacement therapy? Can you yeah. talk about that? Because I've heard so many different things about it and it's, it's unclear on if it helps, when you should use it, how long you should use it, yeah. and some of the side effects. Yeah, so hormone replacement therapy has probably been one of the most debated topics in women's health, I think really ever. It, I think for the most part, it has had a, a, a mixed history. So for the longest time, back when hormone replacements first started, women were put on it and they were never taken off, right? So my dad was a gynecologist and there were women in his 80, in you know, in his practice, who were in their 80s, who were still on hormone replacement therapy, because that's just how it was done. Oh, you're in menopause, you need hormones, here you're on hormones. And I was still seeing that in my practice in Nova Scotia, people coming to me at 75 saying, I'm still taking this, do I still need to take this? I think that it was not properly used for a long time. But I don't think there's any question about whether it works. So it does work for women who have severe symptoms that are disrupting their quality of life. And I think that it has an important part to play in helping women through this time. But there are 
a lot of other options that women can try before that. So in my practice, I used to say that probably about 5% of the women who came to me for help weren't able to respond or didn't respond to integrative treatment options. And I would refer them to another practitioner to look at hormone replacement therapy. And I think the goal now, based on the evidence we have, is that using hormone replacement therapy for up to two years likely does not come with increased risks, especially for people who don't have a history of breast cancer or uterine cancer or strong family history history of clots, like anything that would put them at risk otherwise, that using it for up to two years can be helpful and is safe for most people. I think that most of the women who choose to go that route because they haven't responded to other things are happy with that choice. And I think that's fantastic. But I think that, again, working with a practitioner who's knowledgeable to know how do we manage the risks? How do we use it for the shortest amount of time possible? What is the safest preparation? You know, there's certainly still some debate, I think, between uh, conventional hormone replacement therapy, bioidentical hormones. I think the advantage of bioidentical hormones is that they can be customized to each person. So it's not a one size fits all prescription. It's very much a, this is the stage you're in. And so a woman who's in very early perimenopause, who's not responding to integrated treatment options might opt for a bioidentical prescription that has more progesterone because that's the hormone that she needs more in that particular phase. Whereas a woman who hasn't had a period for six months may opt for um, a prescription that has a higher amount of uh, estrogen. So it can be customized to the stage. And I think that that comes with some advantages. What is the role that hormone replacement therapy does? Because if you've hit menopause, and your estrogen levels, are they, first of all, are they gone or are they just so low that they're not having the impact that they did before you hit menopause? That's so, right. So for the most part in our reproductive life, 95% of our estrogen comes from the follicles. So the follicles that grow the eggs are actually what produce the estrogen. As when we run out of follicles, we run out of that source of estrogen. But because our body needs a little bit of it, part of our adrenal glands can actually help to produce a bit of estrogen. And we can also produce a bit of estrogen in our fatty tissue. Adipose tissue where fat produces a bit of estrogen and we get a little bit of estrogen from our adrenal tissue. So we do have some because we need some. Yeah, so getting on the role of estrogen, estrogen replacement therapy is primarily directed at symptom management. So prior to the big debacle kind of 10 to 15 years ago about whether or not it was safe or not, there used to be a lot of talk about its potential benefits that, oh, it can reduce the risk of heart disease. It can reduce the risk of, you know, osteoporosis. Those benefits are no longer really the main reason that women are choosing it because the studies really aren't showing that there is significant benefit. Or if there is, it's likely not balanced out by the risks. When we're looking at the role of estrogen, yes, it plays a role in heart health. Yes, it plays a role in bone health. Yes, it plays a whole role in cognitive health. But whether or not hormone replacement therapy benefits those outcomes hasn't really been shown yet. If it's ideal to be on them for only two years and it's because of the limited, not lack of, but limited estrogen in our bodies, what happens after that two-year mark if someone is in that position where they really, really need to be on it and now it's been two years and they have to go off of it? Are they starting all over again with those symptoms or is it that once someone reaches a certain stage in their post-menopause phase that it doesn't impact them as much or they can do other things? 
So that's a great question. Um, I think that a lot of it comes down to genetics. So some people are genetically wired to have symptoms for a longer period of time. So one of the ways that we can predict what our own experiences is to look at our mother's experience and to talk to other women in our life who've gone through it. In general, if your mother had a terrible symptomatic long menopause, chances are you might as well. But genetics aren't everything. So what we do before, during, and after influences our experience. And so that's kind of the crux of where I think I come in. So when I'm working with women, I say, okay, we need to you know, introduce good sources of phytoestrogens and fiber into your diet to support your estrogen levels through the next 10 or 15 years. If we can establish that, and we can establish healthy ways of dealing with stress and support healthy sleep and incorporate joyful movement into your life on a regular basis. Your experience of menopause is going to be very different than someone who's not doing those things. If you suffered for five years, went on hormone replacement therapy for two years, and didn't really do all of those other things, then chances are when you come off of that, you may have some return of symptoms. And depending on your genetics and your circumstances, it still may be kind of, you know, kind of crappy, but eventually it does die down, right? Women usually aren't having hot flashes in their 70s. The symptoms will naturally die down on their own. They always do. It's kind of that, you know, you're going to get to Rome one way or the other, but how you get there is up to you. And so that's kind of where working with a practitioner like myself or someone else who's well-versed in not just the hormone piece, not just estrogen, not just progesterone, you know, is looking at the big picture and how can we support the whole experience makes the difference on the other end. This is not one of those where you can go off of it and back on it. It's like two years and you're done. Or can you be off of it? And if you're really struggling like badly, you can go back on it after X number of months or years. The two years isn't a hard and fast rule. So we always have to interpret it in terms of potential risks and benefits for the individual. Many women can make the argument, rightly so, that if they're not sleeping, if, you know, all of these other things that could impact their health long-term, that maybe it's better to extend that hormone replacement for another six months. When we're looking at the research, it's that taking it for up to two years does not seem to increase the risk of breast cancer in particular, which was the big bad outcome that came out of that big study years ago saying that all women should try not to take hormone replacement therapy. So, you know, we had this big drop in hormone replacement <clears throat> therapy that no one wanted to use it. More research was done, said we could, you know, using it for a couple of years is safe, using it for 10 or 15 probably isn't. And so we want to use it for the least amount of time possible is kind of the take home. When you were talking about where estrogen comes from once we've, you know, hit menopause and you were talking about the fatty tissue, here's a question. Yeah. Is this why our bodies, because I've heard as you get older, it's harder to keep the weight off. Is this why our bodies are designed as we get older to make it harder to stay at a lower weight because we need the fat to help with the estrogen levels. And that is, that's a theory that I subscribe to. Um, it's kind of one of those things that's very difficult to, to study, right? It's very difficult to say, yes, this is why. But if we're looking at how our body functions and why it does things, and it's not random, we know that in puberty, girls increase their body fat from kind of five to 7% to upwards of 20% in order to be able to menstruate. That probably has something to do with the fatty tissue. And we know that 80% of women in perimenopause put 
on anywhere from 10, 15 to 20 pounds without changing anything about how they eat or how they move their bodies. Some of that can likely be explained that there's a natural slowdown in metabolism that happens to everybody, men or women, but it makes sense to me and it makes sense to other people um, who work in the field of, um, you know, intuitive eating and health at every size that this is a big reason why women tend to notice changes in their shape and size and distribution even of fat in their body, even if the scale isn't changing, how their body carries that or how where where they're finding that on their body changes in their 40s and 50s. And it very well could have something to do with the fact that that little bit of extra fatty tissue produces a little bit of estrogen. And there's even been studies which have looked at women, um, for example, who are in the lowest range of BMI, which I hate and I hate referencing, but so much of the studies have been done using BMI that we still have to talk about it a bit, that women who had lower BMIs actually had an benefited the most from having that little bit of extra fatty tissue put on in menopause. So it does seem to carry a protective role and, uh, and hopefully there'll be more research to confirm that. But I use that as a normalizing experience. Like when women come to me and the biggest concern that women have often isn't hot flashes and night sweats and anxiety. It's the fact that their body is changing. And for women who have been immersed in diet culture for 20 years, it feels like, you know, um, you know, in, adding insult to injury that I, you know, I've spent 20 years trying to maintain my body and to do this and that. And all of a sudden here I am, I'm 40 and I've put on 20 pounds and I don't know why and my body's changing. Explaining to them that it's nothing that you did. It's, you know, this isn't your fault. This isn't something that you can even maybe necessarily change. And that 80% of the women around you, you know, are going through the same thing. And this is what women talk about all the time, right? It's almost a joke that, you know, you turn 40 and you put on 10 pounds overnight. Well, there's a reason and that it's probably because our body is trying to prepare for this next phase. So normalizing the experience, isn't always easy to like it, but normalizing it helps to take away so much of the blame and shame that women feel in their 40s. How do you know where they're at and what you can do? Like, for example, and I don't even want to call it diagnostic testing because diagnostic testing means you're diagnosing someone with a problem. And in this case, Mm -hmm. not diagnosing with a problem. So I almost want to call it investigative testing. So yes, I like that better too. When we're talking about perimenopause, Measuring estrogen, progesterone, FSH, LH aren't likely to be, have diagnostic value. They can, you know, so for example, FSH is a perfect example. It can fluctuate from one month to the next. So when you're in perimenopause, you can have one month where your, your FSH would suggest that you're still fertile myrtle and, you know, you can have a baby tomorrow. And then the next month you're knocking on menopause's door. So it's very difficult to use that diagnostically. And, you know, similar with LH, you know, it doesn't have as much prognostic value as it does when you're trying to have a baby, right? When you're trying to predict ovulation, LH is the be all and end all, right? So, and measuring estrogen and progesterone also fluctuates. And so if women are having regular periods, chances are estrogen and progesterone are going to fall within normal ranges. And some of the testing that's out there, especially saliva testing for estrogen and progesterone hasn't been shown to be particularly um, predictive either. So, but if we're looking at other hormones, so one hormone that I would often check is cortisol, right? So if I'm trying to understand other things that could be influencing a woman's mood, body composition, energy, sleep, 
and she's 42, and she has a really stressful life, and, 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 I might want to measure cortisol, in which case a saliva test is a really great at-home way for them to do that. That has been shown to be as effective and as reliable as measuring it in the blood. There are definitely are some situations in where other testing can help, but if we're strictly speaking perimenopause, there really isn't a test at this point that is as helpful as cycle tracking. So measuring when your period starts and when it ends, tr trying to identify where you're ovulating just by symptoms. So, you know, are you noticing mucus changes? Are you getting any symptoms around that time? Because in perimenopause, a lot of women will start to have what they call a mini PMS around ovulation. And that's because there's a surge of estrogen. That surge of estrogen for some women can cause sleep changes, can cause mood changes, can cause them to feel really bloated. So really trying to pinpoint when they're happening and and what other symptoms are happening, you know, and trying to identify what's happening in the cycle has the most value to me as a practitioner. And I can teach women this so that they can understand, right? They, if they're tracking their cycle, and we've talked about a few cycles, they're able to say, oh, I'm feeling this way because I'm at this point in my cycle. And that's where the empowerment comes in. Instead of waking up, why am I bloated? Why do I have a headache? Why am I feeling so tired, right? And not having any idea. That's the part that I love about this too, is that it's something that women can do on their own once they understand what's happening. Oh, and I want to say something about melatonin because I love melatonin. Please. But it is misused so often. Understanding how melatonin works is, and when to take it can be a game changer. So you should always definitely check with whoever prescribed it. I often see people taking too much and too late. If you're taking melatonin just before bed and if bedtime is after nine o'clock, you're taking it too late. And if you're taking more than three milligrams and it's not working, you're probably taking too much. Optimally, people should start with half to one milligram between eight and nine o'clock because that is when our melatonin levels are starting to rise naturally. So what we're trying to do with melatonin supplementation is we're trying to piggyback on what your body's already doing. So we're trying to get the wave to crest just a little higher. And you know, if you're having difficulty falling asleep, melatonin used that way can be a game changer for people. But if you are taking it at 10 or 11 o'clock and you're taking five milligrams, chances are you're not going to get a great night's sleep and you're going to wake up feeling really groggy in the middle, in the morning. Definitely talk to people who might have a lot of experience with uh, melatonin and not just, you know, kind of taking what's on the side of the bottle because you could buy five, 10, 20 milligram tablets and that's just way too much. So what I usually tell people is that if you have to take more than three milligrams and you and it you know and it's not working chances are it's not the right option for you i remember going to whole foods and i'm looking at the the aisle and i'm like one milligram <laughs> milligrams with chamomile with lavender yeah. and also melatonin for women in perimenopause is brilliant and is a game changer and it's often my go-to but for women who are in late perimenopause or in menopause it can actually worsen their estrogen symptoms because melatonin actually can block uh, estrogen receptor activity so there are some studies that are looking at it for use as kind of a natural tamoxifen to see because you know it might be associated with reduced risk of breast cancer um, but I definitely have seen it essentially kind of cause hot flashes in women who aren't having a regular period and that's not going to help you sleep. <laughs> so another reason to kind of consult with someone who's knowledgeable, especially about perimenopausal and menopausal sleep. So you've been talking to about seeking an expert. The typical path that we women go on is if we are good about going to see our OBGYN, we go yep. to our OBGYN. 
some believe in naturopaths. And I, I just want to acknowledge on this podcast, it has never been my intention to talk so much about naturopaths. But given the limited data on women's health, and even one of the um, reproductive endocrinologists who does get trained as an OBGYN and then specializes, did acknowledge what OBGYNs are trained on, which was shocking to me. So this is a doctor who went through the training who's like, we're trained on birth control, a couple of surgeries, and doing pap smears, and that's it. I, I think that the integrative approach is what needs to be sought. You know, uh, you know, like I said, my dad was an OBGYN. Um, I have great respect for that field. I had two C-sections, and I'm super grateful for the OBGYNs that I, and the care that I had. But I think that where naturopathic medicine especially shines is in this integrative whole woman experience of menopause. I think that our training and our philosophy and the treat, you know, the tools that we have in our tool bag support this natural transition. You know, we're not looking at treating disease in the same way that maybe kind of conventional medicine um, would typically look at this. You want to have that person on board if you do run into issues, because there are times when there are symptoms that do need to be managed medically. That is absolutely a reality of working with women in menopause. You know, if a woman has extremely severe, heavy bleeding, that needs to be managed medically. There might, you know, there might need to be a drug option. There might need to be an IUD put in. There might need to be an ablation offered. You know, so I think that having the people on your team that you trust that you can have open and honest conversations with about what's happening and not just saying, Oh, yeah, it's uncomfortable, but I can live with it, right? I think that you need to be able to describe in detail, I'm soaking through a pad every 45 minutes, and I have to set two alarms through the night so that I don't soak through my bed, you need to be able to have conversations like that with your healthcare practitioners and feel totally comfortable saying that. Whereas oftentimes, when I talk to women, and I say, how many pads an hour? How many tampons? Can you leave the house? Do you have to set an alarm? They'll say, no, one's ever asked me that before. But yes, yes, I have to set an alarm at two and at four. Otherwise, I, you know, I wake up to a bed soaked in blood. Okay, we need to do something about that. That's priority number one, because they, they can become anemic, right? They, and that makes them tired. And that makes them feel like they have brain fog, and then it affects their mood and, 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 and. So, you know, having the people on your team that you trust, but who are also knowledgeable is absolutely key to having a better menopause. And, you know, when we talk about, you know, the old days of, you know, the doctors knowing everything, everything was just the top of the iceberg. They were really just taught what was above the surface, right? And over the last 40, 50 years, we've learned that so much of health is below the surface. It's what we're thinking. It's what we're feeling. It's what we're eating. It's what we're, how we're moving our body. It's how we're managing stress. It's how we're dealing with life. It's, it's all of those things that there's no test for. And so having a practitioner who you can develop that relationship with you know some of my most kind of satisfying relationships as an ND are with people that I have been seeing for 15 years people that I saw before they got pregnant as they had their babies after they had their babies when their babies were learning how to eat solid food as they started to go through perimenopause and just being able to have that consistency and that continuity of care of saying like oh yeah I know you this happened to you 10 years ago this happened before you just don't remember it, but I have a note about it so I can help you remember it, you know, and being able to remember, you know, or talk about stressors because we have that, that friendship almost that, you know, you get when you have worked with someone for a really long time. And so much of our interactions in healthcare, because they're symptom based are very much about what's happening now, not yesterday, 
don't ask me a question about tomorrow. I just need to know about now because that's how the system is designed. And that doesn't help people to understand what's happening. And it doesn't give them the confidence to ask when something changes. So I do like to always end on a solution-oriented note. So, you know, what would you advise women to do? I mean, we've talked about hormone replacement therapy. We've talked about like ways to help with sleep and things mm-hmm. like Generally speaking, like what are some, a couple of takeaways, because people aren't going to remember everything. If you were to right. say here are three takeaways of how you can support yourself, um, what would those be? So the most important thing I think is, at any age, but especially once you hit 35, you need to learn from someone that you trust or, you know, teach yourself what is happening with your body. What is the normal transition through perimenopause and menopause? Know that it's defined by inconsistency. Know that it's normal for things to change month to month. Know that what is considered perimenopause, like real, just like you would when you're having a baby, right? Like, so most people, if they have the, you know, the, the ability to plan for a pregnancy, take the time to learn about it before. They learn about what they should eat, what they shouldn't eat, who they need to see, what they need to do once they become pregnant they become very focused on what is you know what are the best decisions that I need to make for me and my baby and they have all the support to do that right they have prenatal care providers there are public health nurses there are doulas there are midwives there's all these people who come together to support mom and baby baby's born still support out there we don't do that for women in perimenopause so the onus is really on us to understand what's happening and to understand and seek out the people that you can have as part of your care team you know i think that that's probably my biggest take home is don't go into this blind don't kind of decide that you're going to wing it because you might have a really easy time and i certainly wish that on all women and some women do not everyone thinks that this sucks right like not everyone has hot flashes not everyone experiences sleep changes not everyone experiences body changes but you should know that it could happen hopefully with the understanding of what's happening you can have the conversations with the people that that can help you but just know that menopause is not the end it's just another beginning as I was listening to you talk, I felt like it's the post baby, if you have a baby or like before menopause version of self-care. Like yeah. just, you were talking about like reading the books and like preparing your body, like really that's, you can do that again. And it's yeah. all about self-care. Like it just sounds very soothing. And I hope women see that, that it's not, oh my God, now I have to like call all these doctors, but it's right. really like, how do you take care of yourself to feel better? And I think your tips are spot on. And I appreciate that you've taken your new living situation as an expat and turned it into, you know, a different way to still support women because having an appointment to go to and knowing that when you go to that appointment, it's a bunch of women who are going through what you're going through, maybe not experiencing it in the exact same way, but a vulnerable group. Yeah. Just such a powerful thing. So I think it's a brilliant transition you made and something that's hugely needed. And I can, I can only imagine the friends Thank that you through the group that's awesome. it's a it's a really so far it's been a great uh, great experience for everyone including me um you know because it's a way for me to connect since i can't do the one-on-one face-to-face care that i had done for 16 years and i and i miss my practice and my patients it's a really great way for me to still connect with people and help them so i like to always end on outside of the solution what is your greatest hope for women's health my greatest hope for women's health is that it becomes as prominent as 
other aspects of healthcare. So, you know, we always hear about the big ticket items, right? So we hear about cancer care and infectious disease and, you know, those kinds of things. But women's healthcare tends to be almost kind of, you know, specific to certain situations, right? Oh, you can't get pregnant? Okay, women's healthcare for fertility. Oh, you are pregnant? Women's healthcare for pregnancy. But we're not really looking at women's healthcare through the reproductive life cycle, right? We're not looking at how do we support healthy and normal over a lifetime instead of just in these pockets of life. So I would really like to see it become, you know, to have its definition broadened and so that women can be really supported and taught to support themselves.